morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Romans, chapter 1, I'll read the first seven verses again. You'll know these verses well by the end of the next couple weeks, and they are worth, as is all of God's Word, to commit to memorization, to be familiar with. Romans, chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 1 and read to verse 7. Paul a bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him... We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word, I would invite you to be seated as I pray. Now, for the blessing of the preaching of it, Lord, even now we ask that you would attune and direct our attention to the thing, the means, the exercise that you have given to your church to build a kingdom that cannot be shaken and it would be used, O Lord, by you this morning to bring those who are in darkness to light and those who dwell in the light to greater extent of maturity and wisdom and understanding. Oh Lord, make us a people who long for nothing more than to see your glory and grace manifested in our hearts, in our lives, and all around us. That we might have in our mouths the gospel because it is in our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we continue in the second sermon, not only in this series, but from this chapter in these seven verses that serve as a greeting by Paul to the Romans, there is much here. The longer I am in this book, and I've not been here long, at least in terms of preparing sermons, I am sympathetic with the ministers who were in this book for many sermons, some many years. Uh, The reason is because the more you're in the scriptures, uh, the more sermons come to mind. Sometimes a sermon can arise, and when I say a sermon... I mean something that is like a complete thought that you think is important for the church to know and to live in light of. Sometimes it can come from a series of words. Sometimes it can come from a word. And that is the challenge when we come to a book like this is that it is, it's thick. It's dense. I said last week that the reason I think Romans is such a beloved book is not just because it is scripture, but because it is 
in contrast, perhaps, to other epistles written by Paul, uh, a summary that is not responsive to particular situations in the church, but it was a presentation of the gospel that he wanted to take to Spain. I said last week that this was a support-raising letter. You'll read at the end of the book of Romans that Paul desired to go to the land of Spain. Why? I mean, did he like rice? What was the reason? In fact, I have no idea what the Spanish ate 2,000 years ago. I would imagine it's not unrelated to the things that are eaten today. He did not wish to see particular sights or to delight in certain cuisines. No, Paul, being sent by the Spirit, according to the call of the Father and the salvation that Christ was working in him, knew that there were those in Spain who were to be brought into the kingdom. And the manner in which men and women and children are brought into the kingdom is through the preaching of the word of God. That is the primary means by which you and I have been called into the kingdom and are nurtured by that same gospel that brings us there to begin with. And so last week I talked about Paul the slave who saw himself not belonging to himself Not as someone who signed up, who volunteered, but as we confess in the doctrines of Calvinism was voluntooked, right? Irresistible grace. You have caused much suffering for my sake, now you will suffer much for me. Christ, through his prophet, declared to Paul. And so here we find the opening those first statements concerning the gospel as the eternal plan of God to salvation. I've entitled my sermon this week, Christ the Seed and Son. The Son of God, the Seed of David. How can he be both? Both the fountainhead of the plan of redemption and also the one who would come after David. As Christ himself speaks, David's son and David's Lord. This morning I want to talk about the pattern or design and trajectory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to do so under three headings. The number, or the first heading, the only gospel. Second, an ancient promise, that means it's old. An ancient promise, and then lastly, thirdly, a glorious testimony as it relates to the promise, one fully developed by God. The only gospel, an ancient promise, and a glorious testimony. Now, the first point is short, but I want us to be clear from the outset and to be agreed as to what the gospel is. And so I'm going to read a little bit, which is a bit uncommon, but you're going to see the top of my head more than usual. Don't worry. Hopefully it won't be too much. From the outset, when it comes to the gospel, it is essential that we are guided and informed by God's word before anything else as to what the gospel is, how it can be defined or how it ought to be defined or summarized, and how it is to be rightly believed upon and received. 
what it is, that is the gospel, the content of it, and the nature of its revelation shapes how we receive it. Because it is a gospel of grace, free grace, that is the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness imputed or given to us, it would therefore mean that it is not of works. For to be counted righteous at all, we must be given an alien righteousness. Now that does not mean it comes from another planet on some sort of starship. It is alien in that it is the righteousness of Christ worked out apart from us and then given to us as a gift. It does not originate in us or through us or any other's righteousness. But instead it is Christ's and he gives it to us freely. The language, the fancy theological term is the imputation, not impartation, but the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So let us be very clear and on the same page that the message, that good message of salvation to both Jew and Gentile, that message that Paul longed to take, the news of God's righteousness revealed, confronts not only the ungodliness of rebellion against his holiness, but also the rejection of his free offer of salvation. That of salvation of works by our own effort. We must see then from the beginning, from the very beginning, that God has been telling and showing men, sinners like ourselves, that we must be covered not by a garment woven by the stuff of earth, but by the blood-soaked sacrifice of one worthy who is able to actually take away our sins. As I have said, perhaps we need to be reminded. Of course we need to be reminded. There are only two kinds of religions. The one that Adam and his wife were practicing prior to God's promise of salvation where they covered their nakedness and shame by the stuff of earth that was not authorized or instituted by God. And then the covering that God provides, that of a sacrifice that he provides to cover the nakedness and shame of our sins. We see this from the very beginning. And so then that leads us to my second point, the point that Paul makes here as it relates to the gospel that he had been separated to proclaim that which, look at verse 2, which he, that is Christ, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. I want to focus on those four verses this morning. And the first thing that I want to focus upon as it relates to what Paul is saying is that the promise of salvation is ancient. It is old. Its design comes before us. And so as it relates to this ancient promise, I'm going to speak of the origin of the plan of salvation, of the good news of salvation. Now, in order for something 
to be old, especially in terms of salvation, it is not only essential that it be old with respect to time, but it must be old in terms of timelessness. Now, children, I understand that when you walk through your house and you see some of the things that are there, like perhaps like in our house, one of the bathrooms that's on the first floor has wallpaper. Who puts up wallpaper? Now, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, everyone put up wallpaper. And if you did not put wallpaper up properly, and even if you did, it is impossible. Once you have glued paper to a wall... To remove that paper again without having to call someone in to mud that wall and to get it back to a smooth texture. Unless you like that, you know, shelled out sort of Eastern Europe wartime conflict look, pot-marked sheetrock. Old doesn't mean kids when your parents were kids. Nor does it even mean when your first Parents walked the earth 6,000 years ago. As it relates to the origin, it is not better because it's old, right? It's better because it is eternal in that it belongs to the mind, the plan, the decrees of God. But it isn't just good because it's old, even because it goes beyond our very origin. It is good because it is God's plan. Because God is good. And what Paul is saying in Romans to the Romans about the gospel that he wishes to take to Spain is that the gospel is the eternal plan of God made known to us on the pages of Scripture and to the generations of the covenant family of God. It is good because it is God's good and bright design. Because God is good. And this is a huge point. In fact, oftentimes, even and especially in Reformed circles, we will say we hold to the timeless truths of the Reformed faith. Well, why are they good? Is it merely because they're 500 years old and even older than that? We go back, right, ad fontis to the church fathers. Well, it's not just because really old men taught something that really, really old men talked about, but because we believe that those truths to which we hold so dear are lifted, lifted from the pages of Scripture. And so what Paul is commending to the Romans is the gospel that has its origin not in the mind of men, but the mind of God. And that God did not just go, you know, I'm just going to come up with a plan. But the plan of salvation is born about from a God who is a certain kind of God who loves within himself, the three persons, this love of the persons within the Trinity of God and out of that mutual affection between the persons of the Godhead said, let us make man in our image. And then due to God's decrees, ordaining the fall but not being the cause of it, determined to redeem men, though they were sinful, in order to show his love to them. And this wasn't God pivoting in response to men's actions 
All of it was laid down ever before God said, let there be light. That plan was here in his mind, as it were, ever before the foundations of the world were laid. Sometimes this is called the covenant of redemption. But it is the timeless plan of God to manifest his glory and grace to the sal- or through the salvation of sinners. And so it is ancient. But it is not principally good just because it is old. It is principally good because the one who decided and determined and designed it is good. Now a lot can be said about this. And this is the danger of making points when you're going through a book of Romans is um, that itself is a sermon. The simplicity and the aseity of God himself. He does not need you and me to call that plan good, right? It's good because it's God's plan. It is good that we call it good. It is an element of worship that we call it good. It is necessary to call it good to be a Christian. But it does not depend upon us for it to be a good plan. And this is actually wonderful. And so not only is the plan ancient, but the first word of that plan revealed to us is what Paul refers to when he says, through his prophets. This gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets. Now, the first prophet in scripture is God himself. When he comes to Adam and to his wife upon the occasion of their sin, and he declares three things, or he declares things to three parties, to the man, to the woman, and to the serpent. And the thing that I want to focus on is what is often called the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning early or first. Euangelion is just the fancy word for gospel or good news. It is the first declaration of the promise of God. And what we need to see is that first promise has within it all of the DNA of what comes after it as God's plan of salvation is revealed. It's all right there. It's in seed form. And this is what God says. To the woman, to the man, and to the serpent, there will be enmity between these two parties, the family that God has chosen, and Satan who wars against the people of God. God says, on behalf of sinful men, I will war against Satan. And the war will culminate in the sending of a seed born to a woman whose heel will be crushed by the serpent or Satan, but that seed, that son born of a woman, will crush the head of Satan, the devil. And it is what we call a cosmic, covenantal conflict or battle. And so, from Genesis 3 to the coming of Christ in the Gospels, we find glimpses and the sort of unfolding light. If you take a tapestry, and there on a tapestry is this grand and glorious design, 
and they unfold it. Or ladies, if you go to a, a fabric store and you want to go buy some fabric, all of the fabric is stored on these sort of rectangular cardboard inserts. And they put it on the table, and they, I grew up, I remember time after time, going with my mother to Hamrick's. Not Hamrick's. I can't remember now. All I know is I see in my head these fabrics being unrolled and unrolled and unrolled. Well, these were always sort of solid colors or certain patterns and textures. But think of the plan of God from Genesis 3 to John the Baptist standing in the Jordan baptizing Christ. And then with every unfolding, you find whom? You find Noah and then you find Moses Then you find David, and time after time, throughout history, God is unfolding something like a timeline leading to Christ. But here's the thing. In that final unfolding, when we call Christ the final word, and the plan of God is made fully known to us, what we realize, as Paul is saying, is the one who has been drawing that whole thing from the beginning is Christ. It's it's him throughout it all. And what Paul is commending to the Romans, not because they do not believe, but because he is saying, if you want to send me as a missionary, this is what I'm taking. He's commending himself to them. This is the gospel. And like any Christian who hears the gospel either for the first time and believes, or for the hundredth time goes, oh man, it is that good. Paul wants to say to them the very thing that has been at play this whole time is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the seed. What comes first? The seed and the son who comes later. But it is all one singular plan of salvation. Now you may go, I I don't care. The, The implications of the fact that it is one plan is this. God is not beholden to our rebellion needing to change and pivot plans because the defense lined up for a run and he was going to run. And so they got to call an audible so that he could run a pass play. God didn't go, oh, I didn't plan on Adam sinning so quickly. I didn't plan on Moses striking the rock. I didn't plan on the Jews denying me. No, it was all part of the plan of God. Why? Well, what does Paul say in Romans 9 later? You don't get to ask that question and get any kind of answer that, A, you can understand and that you, O rebellious man, may actually be content with. Shall the clay say to the potter, why are you doing it this way? Now, parents, I get that motivation, right, when your kids go, why? 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 I mean, I understand the question of how does a car engine work? But how many times can a kid say, why am I not allowed to do X? Right? And sometimes you just say, because I am your father, and that is the way it is. Well, that's not a good enough answer. And I say, well, that's the one you're getting. Trust. How much more... Our Heavenly Father, who cannot lie, who cannot sin, who is just and perfect in all his ways. And so what we find is this one word, this seed, 
that grows, and a word about a seed, that grows and grows and grows, that is unfolded and unfolded and unfolded. And it is about not another man, not merely a son of David or a seed of David, but the son of God. He is not just one who will come as a king. He is the eternal son of God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom God made all things. This is what our West... In fact, if you don't have something to do on Sunday afternoon and you wonder, what do I do between worship services? Here's something you can do, though it will not take much time. Go read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, concerning Christ, our only mediator. And what they do is they just take the doctrine of what Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and they are they're shooting fireworks off of it. I mean, they're having a parade around it. Here is what they write in just the first paragraph. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Just chew on it. Don't just read it. Take it line by line or thought by thought. The inclination of sinful men is to reduce any who have power, whether it is the patriarchy or the state or God, and say, I'm not beholden to you. You have no power over me. And one of the great theological eras of Christian history is that of Arminianism. Now, that's a fancy word. It was developed by a couple of Dutch theologians years ago. They were rebuked and chastised and put out of the house, as it were, by the canons of Dort or the council that met, and what they were trying to do was say, not the five points of Arminianism, but the five points of Calvinism. What Arminians were endeavoring to do was to take that old, damnable doctrine of Pelagianism and say, let's resurrect those old bones, and let's put flesh back on it. And this is what they essentially are saying. It is in contrast to all the things we just, I just read. That the covenant is not actually made with Christ and a people. There is no covenant. God is just sort of trying to figure out the offense that we're running. And that ultimately, in order for you and I to be blessed with salvation, we must choose Christ. And if we do not choose him, he will not set his love and affection upon us. Here's the problem. It's Romans 3. It's the Bible. But it's Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What act can you and I do in our flesh to glorify God? What act? How many old ladies do you have to help across the street before God says, you know what, that Joby is a really upstanding guy? 
No, what he says is he may have helped a lot of old ladies across the street, but he's got an anger problem. I caught him coveting someone's fifth wheel camping, right? Those types of things. He's really not that good. And so it is necessary, not just in the unfolding of the history of salvation, but in the salvation that Christ must work in my heart, that the first and final word is not what I say, but what Christ says. And this is what we mean when we speak of Christ as our mediator. When God looks at those who would, apart from his son, be sinful, he looks to the righteousness of his son, and he counts that on our behalf. And before God in eternity, for some reason, you and I stand innocent before the throne because we were chosen. And the beauty is, we were chosen, as Paul says in Romans 9, ever before we did a thing. Ever before we did a thing. From eternity past, as I read, the Father has given to his Son a seed. We. And so that is how Christ is the fount, the source, the origin. It is because before he was the seed of David, he is the Son of God. It is an ancient promise. Third point, a glorious testimony. Not only is this promise ancient, its origins lie beyond us, apart from us. It was revealed to us. And the way in which it was revealed to us is that we see a Messiah with many fathers. Now, what I mean by fathers is that as we look at the unfolding plan of redemption, I want you to think of covenant theology as consisting, as it's opening up, as it's flowering over time, as many indications as many types and signs of how God would redeem us. And this is why when we go back and we look at the Old Testament, in fact, when the epistles, uh, the, the apostles are writing all they're, not all they're doing, uh, what they're in, in the main doing is they're taking Old Testament prophecy and they are showing how these prophecies are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not a new story. It's not a new plan. It's the same old plan. And one of the ways in which we speak about that is we speak of the types and signs, the shadows of former times. And one of the ways in which you ought to walk people through the plan of salvation is by going back all the way to the beginning. <clears throat> we look at the plan of God in creation, but as it relates particularly to redemption, we see that first promise in Genesis 3. We see something of Christ in the story of Noah. And what is that call? To seek the salvation of God. From the water of God's wrath. To get into the ark and be safe from the wrath of God that is coming. In fact, water is a repeated picture in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, if we do not understand the story of Noah properly, we will not understand the story of Exodus properly. That God delivers his people through water 
having been saved and baptized, bringing them to his holy mountain for worship. Where did Noah and his family land at the end when the waters recited? A a mountain. And what happened on that mountain? God entered into covenant with Noah and a sacrifice was made. That sacrifice indicated what? That Noah and his family were saved not because of their own righteousness, but the righteousness that was given to them by a covenant-making and keeping God. We see it again in the book of Exodus. Where does Israel go after they are baptized into the Red Sea? And who were baptized? Only the adults, right? Nope. No. Were there children in the Red Sea? They weren't left on the other side of the sea, were they? They were Israelites. Some of those children had not even been circumcised yet. And then they go where? Where does Israel go after the Red Sea? To the mountain, to Mount Sinai. And this is why those who hold to a republication work of the covenant of works in Moses have got it wrong. That mountain is a mountain of grace where the Father and the Son and the Spirit wed themselves to Israel or himself. God weds himself to Israel and he says, I am your God and you are my people. It is a covenant of grace continuing. And then after Moses, what is the next great high point? Israel could not destroy the Philistines. Do you know why? Because they loved the gods of the Philistines. But there was one who was jealous for the glory of God, who would not tolerate the mocking of Goliath and the pagan idolatry of Philistia. And so what does David come? He comes and he kills every last Philistine. And what does God do? Second Samuel 7. He enters into covenant with David and says, there will always be a king that sits upon the throne. Your throne will be an eternal throne. And then you get to Solomon and go... This guy? The womanizer? Right? Listen, Solomon on that alone could run for office in this country and probably win. Right? It's not Solomon. It's whom? Who is the son? Well, we come to the gospel of Matthew. And you may say, you know, genealogies are a little boring. Until you understand that what the Spirit is doing in Matthew chapter 1 is he is showing how Romans 1 verses 1 through 4 is actually happened. Jesus is truly, literally, of the seed of David. He's David's son. You see, the Messiah has many fathers. There are many types and signs. When Abraham raised his hand to slaughter his son, Isaac, there at the burning bush, he is stopped by an angel. And the angel says to Abraham, Do not kill your son, your only son. But there in the thicket is a ram. Go and slay the ram. But there was no ram for Christ, was there? What does that mean? Then when we come to Christ, we find the substance of the covenant revealed. He is the one that Israel was to long for 
and to see. And it wasn't because the prophecies were hard to understand. Why did Israel not embrace Christ? It was not because they hadn't found out the secret prophetic decoder ring. Christ was doing that in his earthly ministry. It was abundantly clear. Why did they not believe? Well, profoundly, theologically speaking, the Father had not given them that gift. But it is because they worshipped another God in their hearts and not the true God of the Bible. They were idolaters. They hated God. And so now Paul is saying, we have this one who has come in the flesh. And he has been made manifest among us. And it is for him and through him and to him all things exist. He says that later in Romans 11. This is a Messiah God has been saying for centuries, here's the way of salvation. What is essential then is that we rightly divide the word of God and declare with confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. But it is not just enough that we look at the promises made in the past. In fact, there is a third testimony Christ is the source, the Son of God. He is the ultimate revelation of salvation. He is the seed. But in his own life, the Holy Spirit manifests the identity, the power, and the glory of Christ. And what does he say in verse 3? Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, he became like us in every way, truly flesh. And though he died in his flesh, I'm adding that bit, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. What evidence do you need? It's here. What more do you need? He is the Son of God. That means he is sufficient. He is the seed of David. That means he is of us. He is God and man in the flesh. And in the same body that he died in, he was raised in. He is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. I don't know how Paul did it. Well, he did it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in four verses, he communicates to us Every element of the gospel that if you believe it, you don't go to hell. You go to heaven. And if you confess it, you belong to God. And if you believe it, the Spirit fills you and transforms you. Parents, those of you who are keen on your children confessing Christ, give them these four verses to memorize and then explain it to them over and over and over again. Christ is God, Christ is man, Christ is the God-man, and in his flesh he died, and in that same flesh he was raised, and in that same flesh now he intercedes for us in heaven. That's our Redeemer. And that's why Paul wanted to go to Spain. And it isn't just because Christ had a plan for Paul's life. 
It's because Christ has a plan for the nations. So that in Spain, they are speaking in their native tongue the same things that were given to Paul by the Spirit. Right now, I'm preaching in English. Right? The English that I know. And in every other nation of men, Christ's glory and honor is raised. Because it is the seed. It is the seed that begins small, right? Isaac, one. And then from that family, more. And when Jacob and his family moved to Egypt, there were just dozens. But when Moses led them, we have 1.6 million. When Christ appeared to his disciples in a kind of bid to begin again, as the old are cast off and new are grafted in, you find a handful of disciples in the upper room. About 3,000 added on the day of Pentecost. There are churches in this country where 3,000 are gathered for worship. Are they all Christians? I don't know. That's not for me to decide, ultimately, who the elect are and are not. But this I much I know, that because God is the Redeemer, and God has sent us out into the world, we will be fruitful. It can be no other way. Because it is God who has planned. It is God who carries out that plan. And it is God who calls us to salvation. How glorious a gospel this is. Let's pray. Lord.